So in a discussion about the topic, I once told a friend of mine how I am best able to have conversations about issues related to diversity. I said something along the lines of, I feel as though the one thing that helps me listen with compassion and imagine another's experience is that I am a Christian. My friend didn't quite understand why that would matter. Why couldn't I just listen with compassion and imagine another's experience just as a plain old human? But in reflecting on her question, I stand even more so by my response. As a Christian, I am striving each day to follow Christ instead of myself, which is a much better story. These last few months have made us all take a long, hard look at life. And on the heels of tornadoes and a worldwide pandemic, this week's protests and riots over racial disparities have made us all take a long, hard look at ourselves. There is so much unrest and uncertainty in our nation currently that stress levels are skyrocketing and mental health providers are on alert. Life as we knew in, say, January has had some holes poked in it, and most of us are reeling to know how to patch them up in order to continue on as usual. I've heard questions like, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? What am I supposed to do? How will we heal? How will we ever come back from this? So many questions are swirling and so many conversations are being thrown around, but we, as Christians, there's that word again, in the midst of all the competing voices and reports, must pause and remember that we have already been given our instructions. In our passage for today that Caitlin read for us, or Robert read for us, uh, from the last chapter of the first gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us where he would have us begin. Today's verses are widely known as the Great Commission. A commission is the doing of something or the request that something be done. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. They have met the resurrected Lord in Galilee, the site where his ministry first began, and he is giving them his final farewell just before the close of the story. Now, the context for this scene is rife with details that we would certainly recognize today. We have government, leading authorities. We have military involvement. We have the death of a man, bribes and lies. We have innocent bystanders, and we have likely, unlikely messengers. Just before our text for today, the two Marys had gone to the tomb to see Jesus, and when they arrived, they were greeted with an earthquake, an angel-like lightning, and guards who were so afraid of the scene that they passed out. The angel told them Jesus was not there and directed them to go tell the disciples and that Jesus himself would meet them in Galilee. On the way, much to their surprise, they met Jesus. And they fell at his feet and worshipped him, 
something that they did not do prior to the crucifixion. He directs them by first saying, do not be afraid, and then tells them to continue on to tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Meanwhile, we get a camera cut to the office of the chief priest, where some of the guards ran to report what had happened. At this point, let's pause with the scene and ask a few questions. The criminal Jesus they had crucified was reported missing, which came by way of soldiers who had witnessed the chaotic events. Could we have expected them to respond well? Could we have expected them to now be ready to find out what's really going on to get the story straight? The Jews are already on edge under Roman occupation, and now here is this Jesus sect that is causing so much unrest and civil war among them, could we even expect them to want to find out the truth? Their response? Make this situation go away before it reaches the governor. The priests and the elders bribe the soldiers with a large sum of money, it says, to make up a story that Jesus' disciples had come in the night and stolen him away. The Jewish leaders and the soldiers devise a corrupt plot about Jesus and his followers' whereabouts in order to keep themselves out of trouble with the government. Verse 15 says, So they took the money and they did as they were directed. The last few days, Evan and I have been talking extensively about the events of the day. One thing he said, which often comes up in our conversation, was, I don't know how anyone gets through times like these without Jesus. Leading up to Bible study on Wednesday night, we were both so tense and overwhelmed by the news and sifting our place within it. And then we met with several of you over Zoom for our regular Wednesday night discussion. Over the course of the hour, as we fellowshiped with one another, talked of Christian service, and discussed and prayed over recent events, my focus was back on Jesus and our particular body of believers. When we are faced with such large systemic problems, the story of Jesus provides us with a foundation to engage and imagine a way forward. Jesus meets the disciples on the mountain in Galilee, just as he told the women that he would. Verse 17 reads, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus, is it true? Jesus, how are you going to change this system, even when our chief priests are involved in the corruption? Jesus, I am so happy to see you alive, but have you heard about all the tornadoes? My neighbor's in the hospital with COVID, and that man who died in Minneapolis, these protests, Lord, these riots, have you seen the news? There is so much fear. There is so much pain. Jesus, I am so glad to see you alive, but things are at a fever pitch, Lord. I imagine Jesus raising his hands, offering the benediction at the end of the worship service. 
The disciples worshipped him, but they also doubted. And then their eyes turned back to Jesus with raised arms and peace in his eyes. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And they look at him and their hearts stop racing and their minds stop spinning. And they begin to remember what is true in the midst of all the chaos and confusion. Everything has changed. Life is not going to continue on as usual. God is indeed sovereign and power no longer looks like what you thought it looked like. As Jesus stood alive in their midst, God's authority was over even death and the way leading to death. During Jesus' ministry earlier, having heard the disciples arguing among themselves about which one of them was the greatest, he picked up a towel and dipped it in a basin of water and cleaned off the dirt and who knows what else clad sandal feet of the whole group. Richard Foster writes, The point is that Jesus completely redefined leadership and rearranged the lines of authority. We must clearly understand the radical nature of Jesus' teaching on this matter. He was not just reversing the pecking order, as many suppose. He was abolishing it. And then Foster points to Jesus earlier in Matthew saying, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. We see God's sovereignty in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And true power has forever been redefined. Life as they knew it had forever changed. But Jesus does not leave them with a mere exhortation. He concludes with a commission to do something. You are my disciples. Now go do this thing. Even with your doubts, even with these corrupt plots meant to sabotage you, even with the threat of dying, go. Do this thing. In the newspaper this week, there was a story of an anesthesiologist who was reporting on having to practice his specialty in a COVID-19 environment. An anesthesiologist's craft is often the exercise of delicate, fine motor skills. This particular doctor was having to put in hours and hours of research and preparation for performing very precise procedures with special instruments while decked head to toe in hazmat gear, basically. The doctor and nurse anesthetist working with him spent an exorbitant amount of time studying and practicing for go time, a procedure that only lasted a matter of minutes. But they did it, did it successfully and have stretched themselves in the process of remaining faithful to their duty. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. You have spent hours and hours with me as my disciples, learning, observing, training. The rules have all changed now, and you have been witness to it. 
Now it's go time. It's your turn to make disciples, not of yourself, but of me. And let's review just what that means. My kids use a practice in their schooling called narration. Whenever they read something or whenever something is read to them, they must tell back what it is they heard. It's a good exercise in ongoing comprehension because they know it's always coming. They can't go back and read something, which over time poises the student to pay attention from the start. It's a developed skill, and the beauty of it is a healthy respect for the individual learning that is unique to each person. So say we were all listening to the retelling of the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and I asked each of you to tell me back what you heard. Denise may highlight that Jesus interrupted supper to get up from the table to wash their feet. Pam may have skipped over that detail, but may have remembered that Jesus tied a towel around himself. And Rick may have emphasized that Peter at first tried to prohibit Jesus from washing his feet, but then relented and asked him to also wash his hands and his head. There are times, though, as human nature would have it, especially, it seems, on a Friday afternoon when everyone is tired and details of one history reading among hundreds just don't seem that important at the moment, some crucial details of the story are left out in the retelling. Now, all details of the story aren't crucial, so let me give you an example. If we did a reading on the American Revolution... Crucial details would involve the 13 colonies, Great Britain, Native Americans, France, independence, you see. These details could only be revisited at the end of the retelling to make sure we rounded out the story. For Jesus washing the disciples' feet, our retelling may have left out that Jesus sits back down at the table when he is done and says that he did that as an example for them that they also must wash one another's feet. This is a detail we would need to go over again in our remembering. Jesus is going back over the crucial details with the disciples as he is commissioning them and wrapping up their final lesson. To make them disciples, you must first baptize them. John preached a baptism of repentance and I bring you a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be saved through Jesus Christ. Words like be saved and salvation have gotten a lot of flack lately, but this is at the root of identifying as a Christian. And right where Jesus says that we begin as disciples and in making disciples, without repentance, without acknowledgement of our own sinful selves, there is no need for Jesus in my life and God's sovereignty. If I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps and make my own way in the world, where is the need for Jesus? Our hearts are sinful. We are all complicit in the mess of this fallen world. And until we can conf confess that to ourselves and to others, we have no need for Jesus. And we'll probably just make a bigger mess the further we go with that line of thought. 
Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount from the same gospel for today, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes our sin, he takes that law, and he fulfills it for us, giving us relationship with the Almighty God. From there, from that baptism, he can do something with us and send us out to transform hearts and lives. Is it any surprise that we are where we are as a society? Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their, heart, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. Until we can see ourselves with our knee on the back of George Floyd's neck or as an addict living on the streets in downtown Nashville or as Judas taking the money to betray his friend Jesus or as an elder bribing the soldiers to make up a lie so that no one gets in trouble with the government. We have no need for Jesus. The Bible is not about us. It's about God's saving work through Jesus Christ. This is the only reason I can sit in a discussion and listen with compassion and imagine another's experience and not try to make it all about me and my saving actions. Nobody needs me to save anything, but Jesus can. And then he tells them on the mountain to teach the disciples to obey everything he has commanded them. There's that word obey again that we talked about a few weeks ago. There is no obedience without relationship. A repentant heart baptized in the Holy Spirit becomes a wellspring a tree with the ripe fruit of Jesus' commandments to love God and to love neighbor. But some doubted, the text says. We have to constantly get our gaze back on Jesus in order to remember this story. We turn up on Friday afternoon when we're tired, when we're bombarded with the barrage of news and opinions, when we are overwhelmed by our fractured communities and lives and we've forgotten crucial details of our own story. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and we have been baptized into the spirit of the living God who is tending the fruit of his kingdom in our lives. In relationship with God, we are able to love our neighbor as Imago Dei, made in God's image, another image of God. And we can serve and we can suffer with our fellow neighbors who are also walking through their days trying to save themselves. There is no such thing as individualism. We belong to one another. When I was teaching the children in children's ministry and we were studying the parable of the Good Samaritan, I asked them, as Jesus asked the expert in the law, who then is our neighbor? And in unison, they all cried, everyone. 
And Paul tells us, it is Christ and his power at work within us who is able to accomplish far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Some people look at the Great Commission as though it's a breeze. Jesus gave us our marching orders, now let's go. Let's hop on a flight and head to the third world and tell people about Jesus who don't know him. But as we have seen during this season of our lives, it's hard work to first remember we ourselves are disciples of Jesus with a new command and then claim to anyone who really knows us and knows our hidden lives that we have been commissioned to make disciples who will also be co-laborers to bring God's kingdom of love, servanthood, and justice on earth as it is in heaven. But when those first disciples worshiped at his feet and they doubted, as he raised his arms in benediction, their eyes turned back on him and he promised them he would be with them always. He will be with us always. It is a crucial detail that we cannot forget in the living of these days.